Welcome to Uncommon Paths, a podcast that aims at shedding light on often misunderstood topics by creating a space for individuals to share their uncommon life stories. I'm your host, Rita Fuja, and in this first season, we'll cover the topic of cults, featuring one-on-one conversations with high-control group survivors. Before listening to this podcast, please use your discretion as some topics discussed can be triggering. If you or someone you know is experiencing abuse in any way from a high-control group, please reach out to the support organizations that are in your area. Freedom starts here. It starts in your mind. Like, we don't have to be victims. We can be victors. It's a state of mind and a narrative that we can create for ourselves. Um, And we're free to reject the narrative that our parents and society gives us if they're telling us we're victims. In this episode, I'm honored to welcome Geneva Burns, a modern cult survivor. Born to the founders of a fundamentalist cult, Geneva was nearly cut from communication with the outside world for 19 years, until she escaped to start off her new life and begin her journey to recovery. Hello Geneva, thank you for joining me. I have to say I truly admire courage to share your story and I'm glad you're here. Um, So could you introduce yourself in a few words? Absolutely, and thank you for having me. Um, My name is Geneva Burns. I'm 24 years old. I'm from Vermont, but I now live in Chicagoland, Illinois. Um, I grew up in a fundamentalist cult uh, known as the Sovereign Redeemer Assembly, which was run by my father. Um, I escaped when I was 19 years old, and I've begun sharing my experiences on my website to shine a light on the damaging effects of high-control groups and to advocate for a constructive approach to religious trauma. Thank you, Geneva. I think it's a great project you have here. Um, So I wonder if we can jump back in time in the 2000s. You were raised up in Vermont by the founders of the Sovereign Redeemer Assembly. Uh, Could you tell me more about your parents' organization? Sure. So the Sovereign Redeemer Assembly was actually formed in the 1990s. Um, And the best way I can describe it is a hyper-Calvinist legalist cult, for those of you who might know something of Christian theology. So he took one of the most extreme forms of Christian theology and Calvinism and took it to an extreme that I have actually yet to see in any sect of Christianity. Um, He believed that all sects of Christianity, Catholic and Protestant, were all heresy. Um, he was most famous for his website and publication, or infamous, I should say, <laughs> um, outside the camp, and his book, The Christian Confession of Faith, uh, which we refer to as the CCF, um, which was said to contain the only true form of Christianity on the planet that every saved person believed. So he was essentially the head of our household. He was the head of the assembly. He was God's mouthpiece through the CCF, and he was actually a practicing clinical psychologist as, as well, all in one. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. And so how, how big was this assembly? Was there a system of recruitment in place? or? Yeah, so the cult was about 11 members at its highest, at least in person. So we were all huddled into a living room because we didn't actually go to a physical um, church for services. 
There were many more online though. So dad had an outside the camp um, list, which is essentially a Yahoo group where he gathered people from around the world um, who agreed with him and the CCF and they, they um, would converse uh, on there. Dad had some strange <laughs> ways of, 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 of evangelizing. He would frequent theological forums, especially fundamentalist forums, and he would sometimes find people there um, that he would recruit. Or uh, one of our most dedicated followers was actually recruited from a Christian uh, metal forum, like the metal, the music forum <laughs> that my father was on. Um, he started a conversation with him there, and my father convinced him that he would be in contempt of God's word if he didn't pick up... Um, move everything he had from Utah to Vermont. And to my knowledge, he never saw his family again after that. Wow. Um, all the members were made to take a, a written test um, and sign off on a document saying they agreed with all the tenets of the CCF. Um, and I did that when I was 12. Wow, that's young. And so how, how would you say your father's beliefs and his theology influence on your family's dynamics? Mm-hmm. So conveniently, um, the doctrines that my father espoused essentially gave him complete control over the lives of his wife and his children, and a lot of control over the lives of the cult members as well as their pastor. Um, so everything we did, what we wore, what we said, where we went, who we spoke to, what media we were exposed to was all controlled by dad. Um, and we all feared him or revered him or both in my case. Mm. Um, I remember like the, the dynamics, especially between my mother and father. Um, I remember instances where my mother would make a really minor mistake. I remember one time she had accidentally deleted like an email of his or something. And she was literally on her knees begging for forgiveness from him. Um, that was just the kind of fear, I guess, we had of dad, and we all pretty much responded to him the same way. Um, he really, excuse me, he definitely controlled um, the media that we were exposed to and censored a lot of it. Um, we, The books we had in the house, the pages were stapled together. There were passages marked out by Sharpies. Our children's VHS tapes um, were scratched out if they had words like magic or fairy or wizard or things like that um so we would be in the middle of watching something and suddenly it would be like and then cut right back into our children's show wow that's crazy i know um in public we would be um told to like avert our gaze um if there was symbols like a cross or pictures of jesus or women who show too much skin or hmm. people magazines at checkout we were always looking down at the floor during checkout because there were too many magazines around <laughs> wow so, yeah and were there any like rituals in place or we had hmm let me think about that rituals so we did have a passover dinner that we did um, every Sunday. It's the closest thing I can think to a ritual. Um, I just recall how it was explained to us. Um, Dad would tell us that if we partook in the dinner while unbelieving, while not, while not believing in his 
um, religion, then we were to experience permanent spiritual death. So in his mind, that meant if you're partaking of this and you don't actually believe, you are destined for hell and you there's no hope for you. So it was a lot of pressure. <laughs> I felt a lot of pressure to believe fully while taking that dinner. Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, it sounds pretty extremist. Yeah. Hmm. So you, you left home when you were 19 years old. Was your decision the result of some kind of triggering event or rather of a gradual process of realization? I would say both. Um, I like to think of it as though I was surrounded by these successive mirrors or walls, um, which just kept me from seeing the cult for what it was. So I was born into this. I didn't know anything else, and we were systematically isolated, so there was no frame of reference. Mm. There was no validation I could get for any negative feelings that I might have had about what was going on around me. So there were events that would maybe cause one panel to fall and break here or there, but I would quickly rationalize it in my head, suppress the emotions associated with it, and move on from there. Um, I think of when my brothers, I have two older brothers who were excommunicated, and I remember watching them getting shunned by our family, and I was very close to them. It felt horrible. I had insomnia. I had nightmares. I would get up in the middle of the night. I would go upstairs and just weep and like scream and cry. Um, and I would just write my thoughts down on a piece of paper because that's the only thing that would listen to me. Um, I do remember bringing it up to my mother once and told her how I was feeling about things. And she told me that I was letting them win and that I'm letting Satan win if I feel upset about this and this was God's will. So I ought not to feel that way about it. Um, in the end, though, I would definitely say there were successive events that completely shattered my beliefs. So even though we were isolated, I still had dreams, I still had ambitions. I wanted to grow up and become a leader in some fields. Um, I, I wanted a career. I, wanted, I dreamt of like moving out with my sister and starting a farm out in the woods somewhere. Mm. Um, and when I was told I was never allowed to leave unless dad chose a husband for me, um, and that... I was told, when I was told that I could never leave unless dad chose a husband for me and that I could never come to and from the house as I pleased and that I was not even allowed to reject anything that was commanded of me internally or externally, meaning I had to do what was told of me and I couldn't feel bad about it. I couldn't rationalize that any longer. I couldn't pretend I didn't feel a certain way about that any longer. Um, and I knew the moment that I expressed my dissent fully, I would never be a part of the family again. I was going to lose everything. Mm, I'm so sorry. I, I cannot imagine the extreme confusion you were in. I mean, it was extreme for sure. There was a lot of it. It did get to the point of, of self-harm for me. I, I had like um, uh, paper clips that I had at my desk and I just remember like running them down my arm just in anticipation of this event because I knew I was going to have to tell the truth and the truth was going to get me excommunicated. Mm. And your, your two older brothers, they were actually excommunicated and you were pretty young at that time. 
I was wondering, as a child, were you able to catch on their objection towards your family's beliefs and lifestyle? So, my oldest brother, um, he first expressed not even his unbelief, but his lack of surety when he was 12. Um, and in our family, it was black and white. Either you hated God or you loved him. Either you were with the family or you were against the family. So there was no in between. So if you were unsure, you necessarily hated God, you hated our family, and you were a threat to us. So it started really early for, for my oldest brother. So he was like segregated from the rest of the children. Um, he was made to stay in our living room and uh, we weren't allowed to talk to him without supervision. There were controls on our interactions with him for the rest of his childhood there. I remember I was, I think, five years old when that initially happened and I was not old enough to understand what was going on. I just knew that everybody was crying and something was happening to our family and it was traumatic in that sense. I remember slipping a, a note under the door to him afterwards. I really didn't really understand what was going on. It was just a card that said, I love you and I miss you. Hmm. Um, and my father found it and he, he brought it up to me. He's like, what do you mean you miss him? What do you mean you like, what do you mean by that oh. to a five-year-old child? And I was just like, I miss playing with my brother. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah, it was difficult to process when my other brother was excommunicated. I was a teenager by that time, so I was more aware of what was going on. And that only made it worse. It only made it more difficult for me to rationalize. Um, and it meant in my head I felt the need to be honestly more militant about it. And I wanted to be the one child who stayed. I wanted to be the loyal daughter. Hmm. Um, so I honestly, that brought out the worst in me. I could say that. Mm, yeah. And... A few years later, you kind of followed your brothers, you, you left home. So how did that happen? At the time that I left, I was actually working at a supermarket. So my father said that I could work there if I didn't befriend anyone, if I didn't stay alone in a room with a man or talk to anyone about my family. So I was extremely awkward and socially stunted. Um, because I hadn't had interactions with the outside world, so I didn't know how to talk to people. Um, I remember at one point, just because I didn't understand any of the pop culture references that were being thrown around at work, one of my coworkers turned to me and was like, were you, were you raised in a cult or something? And I just froze. I was like, no, no, I wasn't. And I just ran to the back. I was like, no. No, 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 no. Not going there, not going there. Um, so being exposed to quote-unquote normal people is definitely what gave me the perspective and the validation that I had never had before. It's impossible for me uh, to be forbidden from making friends. Hmm. <laughs> I, I am definitely a people person, and that was not something that I could abide by whatsoever. Um, so I started becoming closer to the people that I was working with, and little by little, I started opening up to them and the questions from them started to become more probing and kind of allowed me to really question everything that I was being um, subjected to at the time. I eventually began using a secret Gmail account 
um, in order to talk to those coworkers. So I would wait until everyone in the house was asleep and I would take the computer out to a dark room wow. and I would pretend I was doing school or I was doing school actually. I would do school and I would speak to these people so that if I was asked about it later, I with a clear conscience could say <laughs> yes, I was, I was doing school. Yeah. Um, but that was kind of how those friendships kind of solidified. And as I became more vocal at home about things that were distressing me, my parents just started clamping down on me. So when I started objecting to treatment, there were times that my mother screamed at me. I was told I was a selfish, ungrateful daughter, that I was being ungodly. Um, I was building up the courage to tell them I was going to leave for many weeks. Mm. Um, and that, as I described, it was just an agonizing wait. It was agonizing to anticipate that and know that my actions were going to start that kind of cascade. Um, so I told my mother I was leaving one night. I packed up all my things that night, and the next morning I woke up to my father standing over me. Like his finger was quivering, his voice was quivering, and he was so infuriated by the fact that I was leaving. And that's what prompted the church discipline process, um, which is essentially a trial. So the way it worked was that one person, in this case my dad, uh, would witness against me, tell me that I needed to repent and turn away from this sin that I was committing, which was moving, moving out as a female. Um, if I didn't repent, another person would be brought in to witness against me. If I didn't repent then, another person would be brought in to witness against me. And if I didn't repent then, I would be brought before the entire assembly. And then they would they would all witness against me in agreement with one another. Um, so I got to the second phase of that process. And that took eight plus hours. Wow. I was... I could not... I could hardly think, walk, talk, or feel by the end of it. I still have messages that I was actually reviewing today that I was sending to uh, coworkers at the time, just saying, I, I can't feel anymore. I don't, I, none of this feels real anymore. I, like, I'd cried so much, I couldn't any longer. I couldn't physically feel any longer. Um, so I was in this chair for that amount of time. I didn't participate all that much. It was mostly kind of one directional, um, kind of targeted at me. And my father told me during that time that if there's anything the Bible tells us, it's that the women are always going to rebel. Um, he told me I was under the influence of Satan who was trying to destroy the household because our household had the truth and Satan wanted to destroy that. Um, at almost midnight that night, um, I actually tried running away up the driveway. Um, some coworkers had agreed to meet me there um, and take me away. So when I got to the top of the driveway with my purse and my flashlight, nobody was there because they had apparently gone back to town to try to get service because we lived in the middle of nowhere in Vermont. Um, so I ran back down the driveway where Dad found me. And as soon as I came back inside, because he demanded that I come back inside, I see the lights of the car of my coworkers kind of pull up around the top of the hill. And I said, that's my ride, I'm going. My dad grabbed the door handle, locked it. He told my mom, you're calling the cops. You're not going anywhere. 
So my mom called the cops. She started standing in front of and blocking every opening in the house, every door and every window. She started just standing in front of to make sure that I didn't flee. Um, I told them that they were holding me against my will. They couldn't keep me there. I realized in retrospect that's that's a felony, hmm. that I probably could have done something about it at the time, but I didn't have the wherewithal or even the desire. Of course. I just wanted, I just wanted out at that point. So when the cops arrived, they asked how old I was. I told them I was 19 years old. They said, you can go, but we recommend you go in the morning. Um, so as soon as morning was light, um, I was able to take all of my things, set them by the driveway to be picked up by my coworkers and my father found me before I left and he told me, I feel like I've been fooled again. And I referring to my older brothers since they were excommunicated as well. And I told him I felt quite fooled as well. And he told me that I was such a manipulative liar. Um, and that was the last thing he ever said to my face. I left that day and never came back. Mm, I'm sorry, it must have been heartbreaking. Yeah. And did you have the opportunity to say goodbye to your mother as well? or I did. So my mother was pacing the property the entire time. Um, and before I left, I was sure to come up to her and give her a hug. And she actually did tell me that she loved me at the time. I know she was in a lot of distress. Um, yeah, she did tell me that she loved me. Unfortunately, the next time I ever spoke with her, she told me I was disgusting and and that she wanted nothing to do with me so <sighs> that's so intense yeah <laughs> and so your your co-workers they actually knew about your situation and they came to help you get out of it they did they were my heroes um they not only that but they really encouraged me i remember the the day before i uh this all happened i went was heading home i was closing the deli that day and the gentleman who was closing the deli with me turned to me from his car before I took off. And he looked at me and he said, tonight's the night you're getting out. There's no going back. Tonight's going to be the night. You're not going to back out. Mm. You're not going to chicken out. Tonight's going to be the night. I was like, okay, okay. Tonight's going to be the night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's incredible. And so I was wondering, is it actually when working with those colleagues that you realized your life was somewhat different from others? Uh, yeah. So growing up, we were taught that we were different and that this was a good thing. It was a sin to love the world or to be a part of it. And we were taught that we, our cult or our assembly was a safe haven away from the world. Um, we thought it was dangerous out there. Um, so we knew it was different, but we thought we were the good ones. Um, it was also really apparent growing up around holidays because my family celebrated no holidays. So there would be Christmas lights going up all over town and there'd be Christmas music in, in the mall and things like that. And we would be at home singing along to a song called Santa Claus is a Lie, because that's how we apparently chose to celebrate Christmas. <laughs> wow. And you must have been like, well, those lights and music outside are not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And Christmas, the yes. mall. Yeah, it was so festive, but we, we had nothing to do with it. It was evil. Hmm. So bouncing back on what you told me earlier, you were also raised up in an extremely patriarchal environment. How, how did growing up in this climate uh, affect the way you would say perceive your femininity and more broadly the place of women in society? Right. So I was essentially forbidden from being a woman 
my entire life. We were forbidden from doing anything to our appearance that might make us more attractive. Um, we were even forbidden from using words like beautiful, cute, or pretty to describe other human beings. Because in my father's mind, that was sexual. And female sexuality was probably the most evil thing my father could possibly conceive of. Um, my father now calls me a, a whore just for posting photos on social media of myself. Um, that's all it really takes. Um, I remember my sister and I uh, once made a fake makeup set out of, out of paper. I think we'd seen something in a Walgreens flyer or something. And when mom found out, we were punished for that. Um, we would like hide in the closets and pretend to put earrings on, mm. put, like a... Um, rubber bands with with metal rings on our ears just to see what that would feel like mm. it was just like it was had to be such a secretive thing but it was exciting it was exciting the idea of it was exciting so it's been a really long and hard road to embrace my own femininity and to acknowledge my own beauty like even saying that i still feel my my throat tighten up which which uh. shows you how far i have still to go <laughs> Um, just to recognize like the the many facets of feminine beauty, both internal and external. And I can strive to be a beautiful female in every way, to be a light to others, to be kind to others, maybe by accentuating my external beauty if I want to, but mostly by being as free and as authentic as I can possibly be. And I'm not, like I said, I'm not where I want to be yet, but it's definitely been a worthwhile journey as far as society goes. Um, I think any reasonable person believes in like an egalitarian society. I think what sometimes is missed is that freedom starts here. It starts in your mind. Like we don't have to be victims. We can be victors. It's a state of mind and a narrative that we can create for ourselves. Um, and we're free to reject the narrative that our parents and society gives us if they're telling us we're victims. Um, I think of myself as somebody who's a victor, who's triumphed over my own past and not just triumphed, but managed to make something really beautiful out of it. It's something that can help other people. Mm. Um, and I feel like because of my experience, I have a fervor and like a childlike wonder that most people don't have yeah. because I had to enter the world again as a adult child, essentially at one point. Well, yeah, that's for sure. And You said you still have a long road to go, but it, it looks like you've already gone through an important part of your journey. Thank you. I mean, yeah, just coming to the conclusion that uh, freedom is a mindset yeah. and that hardship is a blessing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's what you mentioned in your blog. Uh, it's, it's a very strong idea and I think it shows an important path of resilience, I would say. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. And... So not so long ago, you started a blog, Daughter of the Devil, Silence No More, and had the courage to reveal your story openly. Uh, was that a project that was hanging in the back of your mind for a while? Or is there something that triggered your desire to write and share your path? This is kind of a funny story. So ever since I left home, um, my father has tried to, ever since all the siblings left home, I should say, Um, my father has attempted to sabotage every area of our life. So work, school, home life, everything. He threatened me with lawsuits. At one point, blackmail. So he told me he, if I didn't move out of the state of Vermont and quit my job, that he was going to put up a website about me and my brother just to reveal to the world what awful people we were. 
we didn't exactly know what was going to be on that website or what kind of dirt he had on us that we weren't aware of. Um, so I started looking up um, domains online just to see what website he would have chosen. So I, my first thought, oh, he's probably going to use my name or one of my siblings' names. So I looked those up and I noticed that the domain for my name at the time my and my brother's name at the time and my brother's band at the time was all purchased under the same registrar at the same time. Wow. So I was like, okay, this sounds like dad might be behind this and I better get ahead of this. So I was actually getting married. Um, so I figured he doesn't know that I'm getting married or what my name is going to be. So I purchased the, my married name, GenevaBurns.com to ensure that he didn't get it. Mm. Um, so, um, I've wanted to write about my experiences for some time in a book and that's definitely certainly in the future still. Um, it's definitely been extremely cathartic. Yeah to write and it's extremely freeing it's taken away so much of the fear of my father that I once had because I've always been afraid of putting myself out there for him to see and for him to judge um but I can put anything out there now Mm -hmm. if he can he can cry about it if he wants to and there's really nothing that he can do I'm not going to stop telling my story and honestly I love my parents and I really do seek to embody the good traits that they had um, and to do away with those that don't serve anyone, obviously. Um, like my mother gave me a really excellent education. My dad gave me like a feistiness, a scrappiness, and an appreciation for art and music and nature. And I hope what I write honors the best parts of our family as well and doesn't just indict them. Yeah, of course. And on your blog, you also write on the subject of the ambiguous loss and frozen grief that you deal with regarding your family back in Vermont. I believe it's the type of grief that very few experience. Like you mentioned, it can be faced by the parents of a missing child. And I was wondering how how you were dealing with it in your day-to-day life. Are there any rituals or tools that help you overcome this grief? Time has definitely been the biggest healer, but I've had to be careful not to allow time to make me permanently numb, if that makes sense. So it's easy over time to allow yourself to become so numb to things that you don't face them any longer. And I feel like I continually need to bring some of these things back to the surface in order to explain some of my own maladaptive behaviors now. I still feel betrayal from my mother. I still feel loss of my siblings all the time. And it comes out in ways that maybe I'm not realizing if I'm not, if I'm not facing it now. Um, so I that's where, that's where I'm at with it now. I don't have any secrets, honestly, on that at all. It's such a difficult thing to deal with. Having brothers who are out as well, who can, we can speak about it as well and reminisce about our family and the really good things about it. Um, and have a sense of humor about the bad things about our family and just the funny things that occurred, that definitely, definitely helps. And I'm lucky that I have them. Mm, That's so nice. And so what have they become, your brothers, if I may ask, of course? My brothers? Oh, my God. So I am so proud of them. So my oldest brother, um, when he got out, um, he, like all of us, was so sabotaged by dad. Um, 
they wouldn't give him any information for student loans or anything. So he kind of pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. He moved himself out to Chicago. Um, he went to the Illinois Institute of Technology. He became an IT engineer and he travels the world now. He's pretty much accomplished everything he's ever wanted to accomplish in his life already. Um, my other brother is a literal rock star. He's a professional musician who tours the Chicagoland area with his country rock band, Yankee Cowboy. Shout out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's incredible. Like they have taken, they've taken adversity and done the best things they possibly could with it. They're incredible examples. I hope I, I hope I do them proud. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, it's it's crazy just the path you guys have been through. I know. Hmm. And so back in time again, how how did you regain contact with them after you left? So I was actually really afraid to speak to them after I got out because it had been so ingrained in me for so many years that they were evil, malicious people who were out to get us, out to destroy us. So I was frightened. Um, my oldest brother was on Google Plus back when that was a thing. And I ended up just taking a leap and connecting with him on Google Plus. And he messaged me on Hangout shortly after. He's like, hey, are you my sister? I was like, yeah, I am. And that just started so many conversations and all the healing mm. just came back so quickly. There were so many apologies for, you know, letters we'd written to each other that were just, or that I had written to him, I should say, that were just so awful. Um, and just apologizing for how we, I don't even know how to describe this. I don't want to say apologizing. So there was, there was a lot of, there was a lot of healing. I can say that. Um, I was out there literally months after that to Chicago to go see him for the first time, to go see both of them for the first time in many, many years. I hadn't seen my oldest brother in about eight years at the time, so it was extremely emotional. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. It must have been very comforting as well to be with your two brothers who've been sort of through the same path. I know. I, I can't even imagine what it was like for my oldest brother to do it on his own and to validate himself and not, not to have that kind of support and not to have that kind of precedent. He made that precedent. And I, I will forever admire him for that. Yeah, that was very brave of him. Yeah. Mm. So you left home and flew to Chicago. It must have been a hectic experience. I mean, discovering this almost new world, living under new codes and norms. Uh, how does this transition take place? What were the biggest challenges you faced? So actually, I recently moved to Chicago. So I actually was in Vermont for many years after I got out. So when I initially got out there, it was magical. It was like nothing else I'd ever experienced before in my life. The first time I walked down the street to go buy something from the store was surreal because I did it of my own volition. I didn't ask anybody. Um, I remember wearing a shirt outside that had a v-neck that was about maybe an inch and a half. It was tiny. I'd never worn anything like that before in my life because we had to be dressed up to our neck. And I'd never felt wind there before. So mm. I was like walking down the street feeling wind on my chest. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> it was so strange. I hardly knew how to pay for things at the store or how those interactions worked. Um, I watched my first movie shortly after, which was 
Tommy Boy <laughs> with nice. Chris Farley. I had a security blanket. I had it like up over my nose so I could cover my eyes whenever somebody wasn't dressed well enough because I was still really sensitive to it at the time. Mm, yeah, of course. <laughs> These things come in phases. Um, the biggest challenges I faced were definitely with relationships after that. Um, just the norms that we were exposed to growing up just are not applicable in the real world. So I'm very trusting and self-sacrificing and I didn't know and currently still I'm not great at setting boundaries so I kind of expect everyone to have the same also the same just syllogistic reasoning that I was raised with as well and the same control over your emotions that I was raised to have as well and it's just not realistic and it's not necessary for the rest of the world so that's an area that I continue to focus on in my self-work. And we talked a lot about freedom as a mindset Uh, having lived an important part of your life in an environment in which you were restrained, would you say you feel totally free today? I don't think there's a touch, such thing as totally free. I think if somebody thinks they're totally free, they're probably not. Yeah, um, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I look behind myself and I see like mountains that I have traversed that I'm proud of. And I look ahead of myself and I see more mountains that I've yet to traverse yet to traverse that I'm excited to like it's endless the journey is endless and I really think freedom is an infinite thing so I, I will never get there but I'll always be striving mm. and so now you're working in the healthcare administration industry uh, could you tell me more about it sure so I actually chose the healthcare administration path when I was 17 I kind of, I don't know how, but I kind of had this intuition that this was something that I would enjoy and that I would excel at. Um, so I just finished my bachelor's in healthcare administration. I just graduated summa cum laude um, earlier in the year, so that was a really big accomplishment. And I will be going to um, UIC for a master's in health informatics next year. So I'm in revenue cycle right now, um, which is wonderful i've i've thoroughly enjoyed it and it's been a really good i guess use of um my odd interpersonal skills <laughs> my strange set of interpersonal skills oh, amazing yeah and uh, you also live with your husband now right i do yep my, my, he's currently sleeping right now but he's been one of my biggest supports and sources of self-esteem and yes i love him dearly mm, that's great And so, last but not least, yeah. um, if the empowered woman you are today could talk to the little girl you were yesterday, uh, what, what would you say to her? Hmm. I would tell her, as we spoke about freedoms in your mind, like the key to everything you need is with you. You have it already. You don't need to go out and get it from anyone else. I would tell her to acknowledge the validity of her own thoughts and feelings. They're important. They're going to guide you through the rest of your life. Um, they're not something to be suppressed or ignored. Um, and I would tell her that she's capable of absolutely anything, but that doesn't mean that she should sit back and take anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, thank you. It's, it's really beautiful. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to share. This conversation was literally a 
roller coaster <laughs> yeah i mean it, yeah it could, there were great parts and there there's sad parts for sure mm-hmm. <laughs> and then i feel like we could go on for hours i mean we could indeed <laughs> but well i'm not gonna keep you up late <laughs> no worries it's only 12 40 a.m here <laughs> <laughs> well is there something you would want to add maybe shoot um <laughs> That's it. Oh, you put me on the spot here. It's true. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, wow. Honestly, I guess a message to my siblings back home. Um, I don't really get much of a chance to speak to them directly. So I have a, a older sister and I have two younger siblings who are still home. And I expect at some point they will probably be exposed to this podcast. So um, I love you guys. And... As I would tell myself, you guys are perfectly capable of freedom. You're perfectly capable of anything you see anyone else doing. You are not inferior in any way. In fact, I think you'll find that once you find your footing in the world, that you are more capable than you could possibly imagine. Mm, Thank you, Geneva. Of course. Thank you, Rita. Yeah, it's a really touching and inspiring tone to end with. Well, I wish you a really successful continuation in your master's and also encouraging you to write your book. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure it's going to be great. Thank you so much. And I need that encouragement. I appreciate it, Rita. (laughs) Thank you, Geneva. Goodbye. Likewise. Thank you for listening. This was Uncommon Paths, episode one with Geneva Burns. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.